Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. Uh, we're about to start a brand new series called Baby Monsters. I'm Brian Lee Pastor here, wherever you're joining us, podcast, unfiltered radio, um, online. Uh, if you're brand new here today, somebody bribed you to be here. We are so glad, whatever the reasoning is. Um, go to the tent, you get one of these. If you're brand new, just text um, what, uh, what's his name, Bradley mentioned earlier, uh, center point to will I know Bradley well, um, <laughs> but <laughs> they'll give you one of these things. Um, and then just two quick things real quick. Um, I have a brand new ebook out called How to Make Decisions When Everything is Uncertain. Probably the top three questions I get. And so um, your feedback has been awesome on this. If you go to bryantgolden.org, you can grab that. It's absolutely free. Um, but it's just one of the things that we deal with a lot. And so we wanna provide that content for you. You can go get it today um, at bryantgolden.org. Second thing is next week, do not come to church. Um, at least do not come to church physically. I mean, you can go somewhere else if you want to, um, but it's Memorial Day weekend. We do what's called Sabbath Sunday, which is a little unorthodox, no services on site. But what you do need to know is we have a special online digital experience. It's gonna be shorter. Um, my wife is gonna join me and her and I are gonna preach um, a shorter message on the baby monsters of relationships. And so we're gonna talk about four or five things with that. And then here's like the real kicker is next week, we are introducing a brand new original from Centerpoint Music called Fighter. And so that's gonna be a part of that online experience. This is my favorite song they've written so far and I've loved all of them. So tune in next week in 9 a.m. YouTube, uh, Centerpoint app, uh, website, anywhere else you can find it. It's pretty much everywhere. Um, but tune in for that experience and then we'll see you the next week in June for a brand new series called Love Where You Live, which I cannot wait for. I'm glad that you're genuinely excited about it. So here's the, no, I agree. Here's the, the question. Have you ever tried to bargain with God? Like just straight up, like if you will, then I will, or if you'll come through on this, I'll give this up. Or, you know, if you'll just somehow mitigate the consequences, like I surrender my life to you. I, like, I think it's in all of us. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not sure about the whole Jesus thing. There's something in us every once in a while. We're like, well, if there is a God, maybe I can cut a deal with him. Like, it's just that thing inside of us. When I was growing up, it centered around girls and curfew. But there's that, just that thing of like, if she'll say yes, I swear, I'll like whatever, or you're driving home somewhere, like I swear, God. If just somehow, like I don't get in trouble for this, I'll, like, I'll be a missionary. I'll, like, that's how I became a pastor. It was a bargain gone bad, and he, like, here I am. <laughs> but like, there is just this thing inside of us of, what do I need to do to get God to do what I want God to do? Like it is just human nature inside of us. And in fact, for some of you, this is kind of your story. It's the reason you actually walked away from God. The whole thing was since God didn't forget it. Like since God didn't answer it, since God didn't come through, since God didn't give me what I thought he was gonna give me or I was so faithful and so I was banking on and then it didn't happen. And in some ways you just kind of walked away from God. You forgot the whole God thing. 
So here's what I wanna talk about today. I wanna talk about the baby monster of control. And can we just give it up for our communications team for that trailer video? And I think the greatest series packaging ever. So the baby monster of control, and, and it's just, centers around this, the desire that all of us have to control all the outcomes of our life, to control our future, to control what we want, and ultimately to control God. And what we end up doing in that space is we want to bargain and barter with God in kind of this quid pro quo system of if you will come through in this, then, you know, I'll do whatever. But it's this whole thing of trying to get God to do what we want God to do. It's trying to leverage God for our deal. Now, here's what a baby monster is, um, at least in my vernacular or definition. Baby monsters are the little things that have the potential to kill the biggest dreams. Like, here's just the reality out there. I think this is true. A lot of times, the thing that, things that derail us in terms of what we want in terms of relationship with God, what we want for our future, what we want in terms of the dreams God's placed in our heart, it's not the huge overt things that trip us up a lot of times. Like, it's not some massive sin. It's not some massive thing that we, you know, we move after and there's a thousand people going, you're an idiot. It's not the huge, obvious things. A lot of times what derails us are the small things over time left unchecked. It's a small decision. It's a small compromise, not that big a deal. Nobody's gonna call you on it. It's subtle. It's below the surface. It's the, the small decisions, it's the small things that you start to do to move in a direction somewhere in your life. And, and my like, just thought around all of this is that if you do not kill those things in their infancy, they have the potential to kill your future. Because you have an enemy that wants to steal and to kill and destroy, and he is subtle and he is smart. And so he's gonna constantly move you in directions to where a lot of times you don't even realize that direction until seven years down the road. And all of a sudden, those little baby monsters that you left unchecked, that you never really paid attention to, it wasn't that big a deal, I can justify it. All of a sudden, those monsters grow and you end up in a place where in some cases you trade too much and you end up in a destination that you didn't really even want for your life. I wanna talk about a guy today who's really the most obvious example of this, but I think we don't recognize how much there is some of us in him. And basically like this dude was all about how can I leverage God to get what I want? Like, how can I trade? How can I barter? How can I bargain to get where I wanna get in life and ultimately get what I want for my future? And the guy that I wanna talk about is Judas Iscariot. Now, like immediately, like he's the most extreme example, like nobody's naming their kids Judas anymore, you know? Um, but like he's, the, like we name our, our dogs Nero and Judas. We name our kids Peter and Paul. That tells you a little bit about what happened and the impact Jesus had in the first century. But like the, the whole thing around like this character, it's so obvious. And yet here's what I would contend. This dude hung out with Jesus for three years. Like he saw all of the miracles. He was there with the epic turn water into wine thing. He watched people who were blind receive sight. He saw people who were dead come back to life again. And I think that there was some sincerity in Judas's following. And yet there was this baby monster of control in him left unchecked that ultimately led him to the place to make one too many trades to the point that it sabotaged his life and his future. Now, here's the thing, just to be honest about this. All of his disciples struggle with this. 
It wasn't just Judas. In fact, all of them were on an equal plane for a while because all of them were, were in it for what they could get from Jesus. Like one time um, Jesus was with his guys and they met a man who was just, basically we know him as the rich young ruler. Anybody know the story? Um, and if you don't, like here's the, the cliff notes is they meet this guy and he's like, hey, I wanna, I wanna follow God. I wanna follow, if you're the Messiah, like I want in on this. And so Jesus starts to talk to this rich young ruler and he's like, okay, awesome. So he goes through all these things and the guy's like, check, got that, check, got that, check, got that. And then Jesus is like, okay, but then you need to sell all your stuff and follow me. And he's like, see you. Like, I can't do that. I got a lot of stuff. I'm wealthy. Like that just seems a little bit extreme. And Jesus was not advocating poverty theology. He was not saying everybody needs to get rid of everything and follow Jesus. This was a specific conversation with this guy where he was drawing the distinction that if you have more stuff, sometimes it's actually more difficult to follow Jesus because you are tempted to place your hope and your trust in your stuff sometimes over your relationship with God. Like you trust the provision rather than the provider. And it's like in this guy's case, the thing that was the barrier, the thing that was keeping him from following Jesus was actually his stuff. It was his comfort. It was his wealth. It was all of his success. And so he's like, if you go and sell all that, then you can come follow me. And immediately that ignited something in Jesus' disciples because Peter turns to Jesus and Peter is often saying things that he should have just kept under wraps and like not said. But Peter turns to Jesus and Matthew records it, Matthew 19, 27. Peter answered Jesus, we've left everything. Like we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be in it for us? Meaning, this is the same thing we do. I've fill in the blank. What are you going to do for me? I've been faithful. I've done what you said. I broke up with her. I've given money. Do you see how often I'm faithful in church attendance? I even watched online during COVID. That should be extra points in heaven. Like I've been all in with you. So what's in it for me? Like, what are you going to give me? And at the end of Jesus' ministry, like you may know this, all of his followers walked away. All of his followers disbelieved and stopped believing. And then they all came back, except for Judas. All of them had the baby monster of control of I'm going to control my future, my outcomes, my success, get what I want. And at some level, I'm gonna leverage Jesus to get it. And eventually they surrendered it and walked away from it. But Judas could never get to that place. Now, here's the thing about Judas, just to give you a little backstory. Um, here's how Judas thought. You guys with me? Like, here's how Judas thought. Judas basically had Old Testament expectations about what the Messiah was gonna be. So what Judas thought was when the Messiah shows up, and at this point, there's pretty good evidence that Jesus might be that guy, but if the Messiah shows up, he is going to be a military and political leader that is going to take back the golden years of Israel. I'm just pausing because 2,000 years later, that's exactly where some of you are still at. 
that we're waiting for Messiah to come with political power and leverage and military might. And yet Jesus' kingdom has never been about that. I'm sorry to break it to you. It has always been a subversive kingdom from the bottom up. And so all of the marginalized, all of the outcast, all of the downtrodden, all the you're not in, we're in, that's the place where Jesus is at and working. And yet we're looking here for Jesus, when are you gonna come? And Jesus is like, I'm already coming, but I'm working from the bottom up. And you're looking for a military leader. You're looking for some national rescue. I'm coming to bring global salvation to the world in every generation that is bigger than military, bigger than political leaders, bigger than any nation. It is the kingdom of God to every generation. And so Judas watched Jesus and he's like, he might be the guy. Like he's got influence. When the dude talks, people listen. Thousands are gathering. Like he might be the guy to restore Israel to the golden age. And yet there was a couple inconsistencies. Like there was things that Jesus didn't do. Because if you were gonna do this, here's what had to happen. You had to hate the Romans. Jesus didn't hate the Romans. You had to have a really good relationship with the religious leaders because you were going to need them to build your platform to restore Israel. I don't know if you know this. Jesus did not have a good relationship with the religious leaders. Like he's calling them out over and over again. Hey, you guys are whitewashed tombs. You're like a grave with decaying bones inside. Love you guys, but like over and over. And then the third thing that you would have had to do was save money and Jesus didn't do any of that. In fact, he didn't seem to be tied to any of the things of the world. So if you're gonna build this movement, it's gonna take some things. It's gonna take some strategic planning. And so the thing that sent Judas over the edge was this moment of extreme, extravagant generosity where he's like, I just don't know if this guy can get it done. He just does not have what it takes to be a leader, to lead what we were hoping that the Messiah would lead or would lead. And so the historical narrative that I wanna pick up and talk about for a couple minutes takes place in the town of Bethany. It's about a mile and a half outside of Jerusalem, which is really important. And this extreme act of generosity is the moment where Judas had the option of either I'm gonna kill this thing that's lurking inside of me or I'm gonna full on surrender to it. And Judas chose what he wanted to do and it led him to a place to make a trade that ultimately ended in the worst way imaginable. And so Matthew, who was there, he saw it. He was hanging with the guys when all of this went down, actually wrote all of this down in a historical eyewitness account. And here's what he said in Matthew 26, verse six. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the town of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Now let's not over-spiritualize this. Because this is just, these are real guys in the room. Number one, that's disgusting. <laughs> Number two, because they know, like, this, it's expensive. So here's the thing about these alabaster jars. They're, they're kind of like wine bottles a little bit. But if you were going to use these things, the way it worked is you would actually have to break the neck off the top of it. And then you would pour the perfume out. So once you broke this thing, like, you couldn't cork it again. Like, it was open. You had to use it. And so she breaks open this expensive perfume bottle that you cannot shut back up again. And she starts pouring it on his head. And they're all angry, like, what are you doing? And here's the thing. Um, it says, or actually John gives us a detail that Matthew doesn't give, that this was actually worth a year's salary. So think about that for a second. 
Like just, let's say the median income in the United States or outside the United States, contextualize this, but about $50,000. I mean, you're talking about a $50,000 bottle of perfume. I mean, even 25,000, 10,000, like it is unbelievably expensive. And this girl takes the top off, starts pouring it on Jesus' head. They're watching this go down. And so verse eight, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Like why this waste? Verse nine, this perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Jesus is like, BS. That's not what you're worried about. That's not what the issue is. Jesus always knows the question behind the question. So you don't really wanna be murmuring and talking and planning when Jesus is in the room. Like Jesus is gonna answer the question you didn't ask. Jesus is gonna be like, hey, let me talk to you about what you're thinking. You're like, well, I didn't say anything out loud. I know, but you thought it, so let me talk to you about it. And so Jesus knows what's going on. He knows the question behind the question. And so verse 10, aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Like basically she's honored me. She's shown shown respect for me. And you guys are completely missing this moment. In verse 11, the poor, you're always gonna have with you. And then I can't overstate this. This is lost on us. But this was such a disruptive, uncomfortable thing that Jesus says next. You're always gonna have the poor with you, but you will not always have me with you. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. And as much as Jesus talked about this, they just were not getting it because it so was outside of the box of what they had considered from a Messiah or from a leader or what God would do if God showed up. So they're thinking, what are you talking about? Messiahs cannot die, bro. Messiahs cannot be killed. You cannot die and be buried. And come on, do you know how long we have waited for this moment? Do you know how long the Jews have waited in anticipation? Do you know how many prophecies have been around this? And you're talking about dying? And the thing is, what they're really concerned about is if Jesus goes down, their influence goes with Jesus. And there's a part of them that's in it for what can Jesus get me? And then the other thing is, if Jesus goes down, they're next on the hit list, they're gonna go down with him. And Jesus knows that. And so verse 13, I I love this. Just just pause for just a second because there's so many skeptics that watch us, listen to us, tune in every single weekend, you're here today and you're trying to figure this whole Jesus thing out. You should just consider this because this is so amazing what Jesus says next. And I get that for some of you, your freshman English teacher took the legs out from under your faith. I'm just telling you, you need to revisit some of those claims because some of those teachers revisited those claims and you don't know about it. You should, you should just think about some of the things that you were told because what Jesus says next, I'm telling you, it is so incredibly powerful. Here's what he says in verse 13, truly, I tell you that wherever this gospel, and in this context, what he's just saying really is this story, wherever this story is preached throughout the world, and they're like, what story? We didn't know you told one. What world are you talking about? Like we know about, you know, we're in Bethany, we know about Jerusalem. And Jesus like, guys, gosh, you have no idea what you are caught up in in this moment, but what is happening right now In this place with this woman, this is a story that is unraveling, that is gonna be told in every generation. Everybody's gonna know about her. 
Everybody is gonna know about this. This thing is gonna be told every generation, every context imaginable, multicultural, multiracial, in every language you can imagine. You guys don't even know how big the world is going to be, but I'm telling you, this story is going to be told. This is a moment. This is a story. This is something for the generations that you are caught up in. And so he says this in verse 13, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Can I just stop and pause? Because I always want to bring this out because it's, we so miss this, we're trying to catch up to it. One of the themes that you'll find over and over and over again throughout the New Testament is Jesus will make women the hero of the story again and again and again. And the reason he does this is very, very specific and strategic because this is a male-dominated culture where women are less than people. They have no part in society. They cannot be witnesses in court. They're not a part of any movement. They're only seen as good for childbearing and you know, keeping a home. And Jesus is turning the table on all of that. And Paul would write more about it in the New Testament that no longer in the Jesus movement is it about male domination. It's about mutual submission. And so every chance Jesus got, he elevated women like this woman to go all throughout the ages, we're gonna be talking about her. Because Jesus is introducing something brand new to the world. And everybody is invited in. I know it ticks you off that I I don't hate the Romans because the Romans are invited into this story. And the Jews are invited into the story. You're gonna find out soon that the Gentiles are invited into the story. And guess what? Women are gonna be invited into this story. And what you guys are a part of right now, come on, I know you have objections and what your English freshman teacher told you and all the things swirling your mind and Noah's Ark and what happened to that and where the heck are the dinosaurs? I get all of those questions. (laughs) But come on, Jesus predicted, I'm gonna build a movement in my name that's gonna dominate the world. And 2,000 years later, you're gonna be talking about this obscure incident where this woman poured perfume on my body and everybody is going to know about it. And here we are 2,000 years later and it happened. You should just figure out how that happens. You should just get some kind of explanation even if you're not gonna follow Jesus. And so there they are in that room. And then John gives us some more details is that they're in that room and they watch that go down and John tells us that it's actually Judas that builds up all the animosity with everybody else to go, man, something, are you serious right now? Are you watching this? Do you see what this lady just did? Because Judas was actually the treasurer of Jesus' little guys, like, I don't know why I called them little guys, his disciples, they were average. And they had, he had been with them for three years and apparently Judas was skimming off the top of the treasury the whole time. So he's making bank the whole time he's following Jesus. And so it's why Judas is especially angry in this moment of like, what's going on? Because what you are wasting in this perfume is actually money that I'm not gonna get. And I'm just telling you, just to pause for one second, this is the moment for Judas. Dude, you've got this baby monster that's been growing for three years. And this should be the clue that something is not right with you. It is all about what's in it for you. It's all about what you're gonna get. It's all about how you're gonna benefit. It's all about how you're gonna leverage Jesus. Judas, I know you've seen the miracles. I know at some level you believe there's something about this guy. I know there's some sincerity in you somewhere. This should be the moment where flags go up to go, I'm off the rails and I'm about to move in a direction and make a trade that I would have never considered in some previous season of my life. Something's wrong and I need to somehow find help for what's going on inside of me. Like the, the effort and the idea of control has now taken control of me. 
And yet Judas doesn't do any of that because he is so enamored with political power. He is so enamored with political power that he feels like Jesus is wasting their opportunity and now he has wasted his time. And so Matthew says in Matthew 26, 14, that then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and asked, verse 15, what are you willing to give me? What are you willing to give me? if I deliver him over to you. And we don't really know everything that Judas was thinking. It may have been that Judas was impatient. So he thought, if I do this, I'm gonna force Jesus' hand and Jesus will actually start acting like a military and political leader. Or it may have been that Judas was so discouraged in this moment, he's like, I just have to make sure that I profit from this somehow. But what we do know, no matter what's going on in his head, Judas had decided he's gonna make sure that he makes bank on this. He is not going to waste three years of his time. And so the phrase deliver him is really, really important because some of you know this. What's the reason that the political and military or really religious leaders couldn't arrest Jesus? The crowds. Everywhere Jesus went, there were crowds. Jesus was healing people. Jesus was popular. So they could not get Jesus away from the crowds to arrest him. And if they would have tried to in those crowds, there may have been a mob. And so basically Judas says, hey, I know how to deliver Jesus meeting. I know how to get Jesus isolated on his own away from the crowds and deliver him into your hands. So they counted out for him, Judas, 30 pieces of silver. I had this um, guy that Nicole introduced me to when we first got together, and um, he he was huge into silver, and so he w- he tried incessantly to get me to invest in it, and so he gave me all of these silver coins. And this is so terrible, but I looked everywhere for him this weekend. I couldn't find him. Um, so that's how good my investment's doing. Um, <laughs> but I did find a couple of them, but. It, he gave me all these silver coins and he was over and over again. He wanted me to invest in silver and gold and all that stuff. And um, there's a few of them I had left. And it reminded me of this moment where, where Judas walks out of this incident because right after this incident with this woman is right when this happened. There was really no delay. And Judas goes out to the religious leaders and they count out for him 30 pieces of silver that were actually a little bit smaller than this. And as I was thinking about this, I couldn't get over the fact that Jesus physically hung out with Jesus for three years. Like he was at Jesus' table, they broke bread, they drank wine together. I can't imagine what Judas thought in those moments where Jesus talks to a tomb with Lazarus in it and says, Lazarus, I want you to come out. And Judas Judas knows about that incident. I I don't know what he's thinking when Jesus is disgustingly throwing mud on this guy's eyes, but by the time he washes it off, the guy could see. I have no idea what Judas thought about in those moments where Jesus would reach out to a leper and rather than the leper making him unclean, Jesus' cleanness would make the leper clean. And yet he walks out of there because this thing had been so unchecked in its infancy that they count out 30 pieces of silver. And in that moment, because he couldn't get Jesus to do what he wanted Jesus to do, he traded the relationship for a bag of silver, for 30 pieces of silver. 
And then I thought, because it's so easy to be self-righteous when we read these stories and like there's no Judas in me, but the reality is there is a little bit of Judas in me. Because I think about all of the things that I have been willing to trade in for relationship with Jesus over and over again. And you know what I mean by that? Not that like Jesus is ever gonna leave you or forsake you. And if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus to go, I I follow you, I believe that you died and rose again for me. It's not an an issue of Jesus' love or Jesus' presence or the fact that Jesus is gonna be there for you. But I'm talking about those moments where you just know there's a crossroads and it's mutually exclusive where in your mind, it's either I do this or I follow Jesus. It's either I say yes to him or I follow Jesus. It's either I take this and I sign this or I follow Jesus or I decide to give into it or I follow Jesus. And there's those moments, you don't even need a verse. It's just those moments, you know, it's the decision, it's the educational pursuit that it's amoral. There's nothing immoral on the base of it, but you just know in that moment, that habit, that thing you're running into, the contract that you're about to sign, the move that you're gonna make to another city. And you just know in that moment, it is either I run after this or I follow Jesus. And the reality is Judas is in this place of, he knows that this is mutually exclusive. Either I do this or I follow Jesus, but it is the baby monster of control. I wanna control my outcomes. I wanna control my future. I wanna control what I want. I ultimately wanna control God. And when you allow that to fester inside of you, sometimes you will get to a crossroads to make one too many trades. And yet Judas is in this place willing to make this trade. And in the moment, it seems like the thing to do because the emotional pull is so strong. The idea that I need this is so strong. The pull of this is what I think I need for my future is so strong that in the moment he's so blinded that he's trading everything. And so from then on, Jew just watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. And then the music changes in the story because right at this point, this is right before Passover. And so Jesus realizes we gotta get the guys ready for Passover. He sends several of his guys to Jerusalem about a mile and a half away and says, find a place for us. We're gonna have Passover. So they find a little upper room apartment. They cut a deal with the guy. They all end up in that apartment and they have their Passover meal. And then Jesus does the strangest thing in a long line of really strange things. If you're a Messiah, if you're a leader, if you're some guy who's come to restore Israel because he gets up from the table and he takes off his robe, which is actually the sign of his rabbinical authority. That's a big deal. And he decides to willingly set it aside and tie it around his waist. And then he kneels down and he begins to wash the disgusting feet of his disciples after their mile and a half journey into Jerusalem and into this upper room. And they are, again, indignant. They are so angry. Hey, dude, act like a leader. Act like you've come to do what you've come to do. Act like you're going to lead Israel. Like a leader does not get down on his knees and begin to wash the feet of his followers or his disciples. And yet Jesus gets up and he's like, eyeball to eyeball, look at me. Peter, look at me. I'm bringing something new. If you ever find yourself with leverage and authority and power, mark my words, that leverage, that authority, and that power is not for the sake of you. 
It's for the sake of everybody else around you. And when you walk into a room and you find yourself as a big deal, everybody's looking to you. Everybody's leaning into your words. In that moment, you've got some power and you've got some influence. If you want to follow Jesus, the marching orders are to give that power and that influence away. If you want to love and follow God, the paradigm has now shifted. Your love and following of God is going to be borne out in how you love, serve, and leverage what you have for the sake of other people around you who are nothing like you. And then he got done, he looked at all of his guys and said, I don't want you to ever forget this moment. And they never forgot that moment. And then a couple of his guys have the idea of like, we need to go to the garden of Gethsemane to pray. And as soon as they utter those words, Judas in his mind is like, that's perfect. They go to the garden of Gethsemane. That's my moment. Cause it's going to be dark. Jesus is going to be away from the crowds. There's not going to be a much to hinder us from apprehending Jesus. Like this is the perfect moment. The only problem is Judas has a little issue because he's played along the whole time. And now it's how do I get out of the room and notify the religious leaders that I'm going to deliver Jesus to them? Like, how do I make that happen? And as Judas is trying to figure all this out in his head while he's simultaneously playing along with this big act, Jesus says something that I I tell you, it sent chills down Judas's spine. Jesus says next in John 13, 21, very truly, I tell you, one of you is gonna betray me. And I think Judas is like, dang it. How did I think I was gonna get away with this? Jesus always knows what we're doing. He reads our mind, answers questions before we ask him. And I know Peter's been carrying this sword around the whole time, just waiting for an opportunity to use it. Like this is gonna be the moment it all ends for me. And yet Jesus continues as he's looking at Judas in verse 27, he leans over and says, hey, listen, Judas, what you're about to do Just do it quickly, man. In in essence, Judas, I know. I know what you're doing. I know what you're plotting. I know who you've talked to. But I'm not gonna stand in your way. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him because I think they thought that Jesus may be sending him on an errand again. They're just not tracking with any of it. And so right after this, right after Jesus was gone, Jesus says the strangest thing. Don't miss this, verse 31. When he was gone, Jesus said, now. This is such a Jesus thing. As in right now. As in right in this moment. Now, the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. Meaning, <laughs> this is so Jesus-y. Everything is working according to my plan. Because when you resist God, and this is somewhat terrifying, but it's important that we know, when you resist God, you still participate in God's will. And in this moment, it's a reminder from Jesus to these guys and to us, my hand cannot be forced and my will will not be thwarted. And in those moments where you're at a crossroads and it's mutually exclusive, either I'm gonna run after this, I'm gonna follow Jesus, that should help you in that moment to surrender because you can move in this direction all that you want and you just need to know from a sovereign God who is in control of all things actual and possible, you will still participate in my ultimate will. I would just love for you to do it willingly because I'm for you. 
And so we don't know what Jesus thought or Judas thought, but we know that he didn't think it was gonna escalate. Because the moment that Caiaphas handed Jesus over to Pilate, he knew the end game because the only reason that you would hand somebody over to a Roman official was for execution. The Jews had no authority to be able to execute. So the moment that transfer happened from Caiaphas to Pilate, Judas panicked because he knew this would be the end of Jesus. And he never thought that it would escalate that far. And Matthew records it in Matthew 27, three, when Judas who had betrayed him saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with shame, with guilt, with remorse, with regret. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders. Here's what's crazy to me. What was of extraordinary value in one moment had no value in the next moment. What he was willing to trade everything for in one moment that seemed like I've got to do this, I've got to get this. In the next moment, that thing that he traded in for relationship with Jesus had no value to him. Because I'm just telling you, when you trade God in for anything, it immediately diminishes in value. It's Jonah after he ran from God and he starts to cry out and he talks about clinging to worthless idols. And when he gets to the end of his self to realize that he's run after things that are not as good as God is, he cries out for God because the idols that you chase, the 30 pieces of silver you chase, when you get to the end of yourself, you do not cry out for that thing, you cry out for God. And Judas is in this place where he recognized, I've made one too many trades. And what I thought was the thing that I needed, it overpromised and it underdelivered. And come on, isn't this true? Like for all of us, your greatest regrets in a lot of cases, your greatest regrets center around things that are not even a part of your life anymore. It was a career thing. It was a business trip thing that you tried to hide. It was a relationship that you shouldn't have said yes to. It was that thing that you ran after. It was the habit that you willfully ran into. It was the, I'm just gonna ignore it and do it anyway. And the thing in that moment that you traded for relationship with Jesus is not even present in your life anymore. Because I'm telling you, those little monsters eventually become little gods. And those little gods always disappoint. They always overpromise and always underdeliver. And Judas is in this place where he understands that his greatest regret, his greatest regret was not that he missed out. His greatest regret was that he tried to force the hand of God. And so in verse four, in Matthew 27, Matthew records the Judas said, trigger warning, I have sinned and I betrayed innocent blood. And they're like, what is that to us? And this is such a huge three words. That is, Judas, that's your responsibility. That's your responsibility. That's on you. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left and then he went away and he hanged himself. And to use Jesus' language, Judas gained 
a 30 pieces of silver world, but he lost his soul. And this, this is the thing that creates so much angst in me because for so many of us, we are so ready in certain cases when the circumstances are just right, when we haven't paid attention to this baby monster of control in its infancy, there's moments where it is so easy to reject Jesus for things that ultimately we're gonna lose in the end anyway. We're, we're not gonna keep it anyway. And all of us know about people, I guarantee you, that are trying to preserve something or hang on to something that they traded in for relationship with Jesus and decided I'm gonna go a different direction. And they're trying to hang on to it. And while they're hanging on to it, it has less and less appeal. It's like when you drive a car off the car lot and it immediately diminishes in value and you're regretting the payments. Judas is in this place to go like, why did I trade this? Why did I go after this? And it is breaking the heart of my heavenly father. Listen, when you decide to bargain rather than surrender, you just need to know this. And this is, this is what we can learn from the life of Judas. When you bargain rather than surrender, you ultimately are responsible for the outcomes of your life. And you don't wanna be responsible for the outcomes of your life. And what you find throughout scripture is that God will not get in the way of you having your way. And your way becomes your responsibility. And you cannot always pray your way out of dysfunction that you behaved your way into. And it breaks the heart of your heavenly father. He is not angry he is not vindictive. He is not trying to light you up or pay you back. You just need to know this. He did all of that on the cross. The attitude of your heavenly father is heartbreak. I am for you. I died for you. I want the best for you. And I know it doesn't always make sense in the moment. I know it looks like sacrifice. And I know it is so counterintuitive and counterculture, but I'm asking you to trust me. And when you decide to go your own way, you take the responsibility for the outcomes of your life and you have no real control over the outcomes of your life. So my question is just this as we end. What are you willing to trade because I know, I know how this lands. I know some of you are right on the verge of this. And it's like, how did you know? How did you talk about this? Were you reading my text messages? Because you're right at that place. What are you willing to trade? What are you willing to cash in in this moment where you just know it's mutually exclusive? I either follow Jesus or I run after this thing. And I get it. It is so much easier to bargain with God than it is to surrender. But when we surrender, God takes responsibility for the outcome of our life. And I'm just telling you, personal experience, the most fulfilling, the most peace-filled, even when all of life is hitting the fan and there's crap going on all around you, the most fulfilling, peace-filled place to be is in the center of God's will for your life. And it's why your savior taught us to pray, God, not my will, but your will be done in my life because I am not in control of my outcomes. Most of the time, I don't even know what I want. I can't predict the future. 
I can't begin to be arrogant enough to control you. So even when I don't understand it and the trade is tempting, your will be done. And I get that that's risky and that requires trust and what's gonna happen if I don't make that trade, but I'm telling you it is riskier when you trade God for anything because you become responsible. And I get it, following Jesus costs you something. Trading him in will cost you more. And so as we end, I just wanna end with this question. Have you ever surrendered control of your life? I know that's very preachery. That's how do you expect me to win, but I'm I'm dead serious. Have you ever surrendered control of your life? And I don't think that's a one-time thing. I think that's an ongoing thing. But for many of us, this is the moment. It's around one area. It's around one decision. It's around one crossroads where right now you feel the temptation rising up in you. And the anecdote for pushing back against the baby monster of control is to go, God, in this area and with my life, I surrender control to you. I do not understand you. I don't know where you're at in this. I don't know why I'm even faced with this crossroad. I don't know why you've asked me to walk through this, but you haven't been asked to understand him. You've been asked to surrender to him. And not out of blind trust, but out of trust in the one who has done something in history by dying on a cross and walking out of a grave alive. And so this moment you would say, I'm surrendering control of my future, of my outcomes, of what I think I want, and my control of God. And God, I surrender all of that to you. It is the only way to kill it. And I'm just warning you, if you don't kill it, it may grow to the extent that your desire for control has control and you make one too many trades. And it is not that God will not forgive you and God doesn't love you. But come on. Sometimes you move into a future destination and there's things that you can never get back. And this is the moment God's going, would you follow me? Would you surrender to me? Would you bow your knee to me? Would you pray with me wherever you're at, online audience, podcast, radio, wherever you're listening and you're able in the room right now in this moment. And I didn't plan this and this is always a little bit risky but I'm gonna do it anyway. In this moment, for some of you, this, it's so, there's so much emotion in this. It's so where you are. And the Holy Spirit is almost pinning you to your seat that I just wanna give you opportunity to respond in, in just a moment as we end in this last song. And so if there is an area, or maybe it's just a, a, a universal, like 3,000 foot declaration of your life of God, I'm surrendering control as I get ready to end in prayer with nobody looking around, would you just stand up if that's you right now? And I wanna generally pray for you. Like there's an area, there's a thing, or maybe, maybe it's just a life declaration. Like right now I feel the pull of, I need to surrender control of my life to my savior. If that's you, would you just stand up right now? Yeah. Yeah, come on. There's something about public declarations that cement something in your own heart that like, I'm serious. And so God, I I surrender. Stay staying, I wanna pray for you. Lord, I just pray that you would meet these people directly, specifically, personally where they are. And there is something about a public declaration of God, I've decided I trust you. It doesn't, 
It doesn't change anything in practicality, but there is something about anchoring this truth, this reality in our heart to go, God, I'm, I'm serious. God, keep me accountable. Help me right now in this moment as maybe I'm facing this fork in the road and I'm gonna go one way or the other. And right now I declare I'm surrendering my life to you. And I pray by the power of your spirit, you would confirm that, that you would enable them in that, that you would empower them moving forward. And God, for some of this, us, this would be the moment of surrender that would, that would write a completely different story for our future. And so I'm praying that you would move and work in the way that only you can right now. And we pray this in Jesus' incredible name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.